How, how many of you remember the old Time to Make the Donuts commercial? This is 1984 is when, the, is, is when this was aired. Um, did you guys see Dunkin' Donuts just opened up? A new one in Fort Collins? Yeah, how many of you are it's no It's no Krispy Kreme, but it's Dunkin' Donuts. And Dunkin' Donuts is good, so I'm kind of excited about it. This is like a highlight for me when I saw it. Um, commer- you know, commercials, I remember, you know, this commercial was on for years. years. Uh, commercials always have intended messages, right? What's, what's the intended message? What, what is Dunkin' Donuts trying to communicate to the 1984 community? Our donuts are always fresh, right? Made like multiple times a day, right? There's also always unintended messages in, in messages, in ideas. What's an unintended message about this? Like, what, is you, what do you think about? What's that? Something about making the donuts? <laughs> Slave driver. Okay, he's probably got a bad boss, okay? He's in a, he's in, he's in a bad career path, right? Uh, I, I remember seeing this, and I seriously remember as a kid thinking like, Oh my gosh, I don't ever want to work at Dunkin' Donuts. It would be off. It would be like the worst choice of my life, right? This, this, this total unintended message, I'm sure you get it's funny and that sort of thing, but it sort of reinforces like this will be the worst decision you ever make in your life to come to work for us. I always think to myself when I'm in a, like when I go to a fast food restaurant especially, or, or, or I go to a grocery store or something, um, I always think to myself, if I'm ever the manager of a store, I'm going to work so stinking hard at training my employees not to say things like, you know, we ask, hey, how's your day going? Not too bad. I'm off in two hours. Can't wait for that to come. Right? It's like, it's this constant attitude of sort of like, I can't believe I have to be here. This stinks. I hate this. I'm miserable. Now, how can I help you? And you're just like, uh, I'll just go to somewhere else. But there's, there's kind of this, this attitude that our culture exhibits um, that, that just kind of thinks about work that way. Um, this summer, I started uh, reading through the book of Proverbs. We've been talking about this. We talked about the Proverbs challenge. A lot of you guys have been doing that where we, you read the proverb of the day, 31 chapters in the book, usually about 31 days in the month. And so just every day reading the proverb of the day. And, and so I've been doing that here for the past few months. And what's such an interesting experience for me is the the themes that, that I see uh, arising. It's, it's like these constant, ongoing ideas keep surfacing their heads. And I, I wasn't in the series planning on talking about work or vocation or labor. Uh, about a year ago, we did a series called Being Human, and we, we talked a little bit about creativity. And, um, but but I, just, I saw this like continual idea, this theme of work and the book of Proverbs speaks of work kind of in two categories. You know, the book of Proverbs, it's always kind of binaries. It's these two extremes. It's this and that. And it speaks of work very positively under, under words like diligence. And then it speaks of, uh, of work very negatively under, under terms like laziness, slothfulness, sluggard. I love that word, sluggardliness. Isn't that a cool word? I'm going to start using that a little bit more. But it's relevant for us because... Think, think, think about just about where we are, about how often we interact with this, with this reality. Um, Dorothy Sayers, I quoted this last time that we were talking about her. She said, in any religion which only addresses like 
8% of your life, meaning like when you go to church and when you read your Bible. Any religion which only addresses that and not the other 80% of your life, meaning when you're at work, isn't a religion worth having anything to do with. And it's so interesting, the Bible has an enormous amount to say about work. It addresses the 80% of our lives as well as the other 20% in different ways. But this hits home. I, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a psychologist just this week. And I was asking her, what are, what are you seeing like in your, in your private practice? And she's had some various different roles in different demographics, different age groups. Um, like, what are some things that you're seeing as it relates to, to, uh, to work? And she said that um, work is like one of the top stress factors in people's lives today. She said people typically in, in this generation from the research that's been done are working longer hours. People who are working are typically working longer hours than one generation ago. She said also technology is feeding into it because things like smartphones and laptops keep, keep me tied to my activity of work. It, it's less uh, easy to to cut off my day, to kind of leave it there when I go home because I have email that I'm getting on my phone, I have this on my tablet, I, I get texts about, we have less of a division or break of saying, oh yeah, sure, I don't, I don't mind bothering you at home. So we're tied to it that way. And she said one of the biggest um, issues that, that, that surfacing that she sees a lot is, is people who have this experience where life, work life, it's extremely demanding a lot, of, a lot of pressure there at work, and, and yet there is almost no personal control or decision-making that's um, allowed by the employee, meaning of a, lot of a lot of responsibility but very little authority, if that makes sense. And so she said there's all these different dynamics just about culture and where we are, especially American culture, when it comes to work that is raising the stress level in people's lives. Here's what I'd like you to do. Let's, let, let's take three minutes. We do this every week. Turn your table, and I want you to take just, again, 30 seconds each, something like that, and I want you to talk about what is the first job you ever had or what's the worst job you ever had. Hopefully the worst one isn't like the one you got right now. But what's, what's the first job you ever had or the worst job you ever had? And then we'll pull back together, Okay. Three minutes. Thank you. 
Okay. Any, any, any really, like, really good ones, like, from the movie or the show Dirty Jobs? Like, anything really, really crazy jobs? Anyone have anything? Yell it out. Chicken coop cleaner? Oh, that's worse than to have to make the donut. Have to clean the chicken coop. Sounds awful. What else? Other, other, other interesting ones like that kind of any, any, any. Can anything be chicken coop cleaner? That sounds like the worst. I can't imagine anything worse than that. Um. The Bible has so much to say about work. There's one proverb in particular. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Proverbs if you have your smartphone or tablet. Take a look at Proverbs, and I want to look at chapter 10. Um, Proverbs chapter 10, and just verse 4. And again, it's Proverbs, remember, typically contrasts these two ideas. And so the two words need to be understood sort of as uh, contrast to one another. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 4 says, lazy, that's the first word, lazy hands make for poverty. Here's the other word, but diligent hands bring wealth. Now that seems kind of obvious. Okay, I get what you're saying. If you work hard, you'll get, you'll, you'll do well. But there's, there's a little bit more there in terms of the words that are being used. Lazy here means slack. And it's the picture of a bow, like a bow and arrow, with, with, which has been strung, but it hasn't been strung tightly. So it still shoots, it still shoots arrows, but the arrows um, go to the side. Um, they, don't, they don't really work. And so um, when you think about that, many commentators, because of that, when they hear the word diligent, it doesn't so much mean working hard. It's not working hard as much as it is working smart. Um, it's it's strategic work. It's targeted work in that sense. Um, so what this tells us is there there are there are two extremes to avoid. Um, laziness, you know, being being derelict, being being just slack, still doing things, but but not doing them creatively, carefully, shrewdly, um, in, a, in a specific targeted way, so you could still be very, very active. You could be getting lots of things done and still have slack in the sense of you're not critically, carefully doing it. But also, it gives us another extreme, and that's drivenness. That's, that's the sense of work, this drive, which, which I'm being propelled by something in order to meet some need, to find some value, to find some purpose, uh, because I'm essentially, I don't have any sort of a well-being in and of myself. I don't have an, an identity, and so I'm trying to find that in some sort of an activity. And it says there's a balance in work, and that's this idea of, of diligence. So the, a biblical view first tells us it's not drivenness. That's, that's equally wrong and destructive and disharmonious to your soul as laziness is. And again, we always, you ever, you ever like been in an interview or like done an interview, and someone's like, you know, what's your, what's your greatest weakness? And people are like, well, I just, I won't stop working. I'll tell you what, I just drive myself to the ground, my fingers to the bone, you know. And it's this sort of underhanded way of saying, like, I'm going to be a great employee. Like, like, that's a great thing. When in reality, if we had a biblical view of it, we would, that would be as embarrassing of a thing to say as saying, and I just can't pry myself out of bed. You'll be lucky if you get me here by noon <clears throat> most days. But see, American culture prizes this because drivenness 
is about something that we're going to talk about here. But a biblical view says this is evil and destructive to your soul just as much as this is. They're both evil. They're both wrong. And neither one is God's plan for this idea of work or vocation. The second thing, look at, look at Proverbs chapter 27 as we're kind of looking at a biblical understanding, a biblical approach to the word. Proverbs 27, 18 reads this. The one who guards a fig tree will eat its fruit, and whoever protects their master, that's, that's a key word, master, will be honored. Now, this is a, commentators say this is a deliberate paradox here. Because someone who has a master who's tending his, someone else's uh, stuff is a, is a slave. Low status, low honor, okay? But that person, it said, will be honored. Now, here's, here's, here's the radical idea, is that the Bible says that even the most menial job, the most menial task, um, something that you would say, man, I wouldn't want to do that. Maybe it's, you know, the making the donuts or whatever. If done targetedly, if done diligently, there's an honor to it. Now, why is that so difficult? Because see, here's what we need to see. The Bible is extremely positive about work, and the reason it's so radical is because there is no other religious text in the world. There is no other ancient religion anywhere that saw every class of work, every, every stratosphere of work, as dignified as, as being honorable. For an example, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Greeks had a, had a, a, a legend, a myth story about creation. And we, we call it Pandora's box. And the gods tell this woman, Pandora, don't open it's actually a jar. But they say, they say, don't open this. Everything bad will come out. And, and this is the account of how things go wrong. Of course, she's you know, kind of curious George. And so she opens the jar and, and, and death comes out and disease comes out and destruction comes out and decay comes out and work labor comes out and so for the for the greek worldview the greek mindset whether you go to plato or aristotle even the best of thinkers geniuses who 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 were so bright in so many areas ultimately they saw work as at best a necessary evil in some ways you go to the ancient Mesopotamian creation account um, called the Enema Elish. And the, the various gods are, are going to create, and um, the main one, Marduk, you know, they do this through this various uh, process. They, they create the world, and they've got a world on their hands, but all of a sudden they realize there's like an HOA fee. There's like a maintenance fee, and they're like, this is not very fun. We've got to take care of the world, and we've got to tend it, and this isn't what we were anticipating. And so in the, in the text, Marduk, kind of the head god, says this, I will bring into being a lowly, primitive creature we'll call man. To him shall be charged all the labor, or the work, so that the gods may have rest, so that we don't have to. You'll do it all for us. You'll be our gophers. You'll be our slaves. Now contrast this with a totally different account. The book of Genesis, the Hebrews give us a radically different account. The, the book of Genesis, the first thing you see is a God with his hands in the dirt, right? He's creating. He's designing. And we see him actually doing manual labor. He's making us from the dirt. He has his hands in the soil. He's got dirt underneath his fingernails. 
And th- th- this would have been astonishing to the Greeks. See, they understood the material world as, as corrupt. And God would never really come into close contact with it. But manual labor, the Greeks would say, is particularly degrading. And here's God doing manual labor right from the start. And then, and then go forward a little bit in the creation account in Genesis. And you see God creating humanity after he creates them from the ground. And he puts them in a paradise. We call it this Garden of Eden. And he says it's, it's absolute human flourishing. It's, like the, it's, it's blissful. It's the very best thing that you can imagine. And right there smack in the center of it is the four-letter word. Work is going on. This is before rebellion. This is before sin. This is before all the brokenness. Work is involved. And he uses words like cultivate. Right? I want you to be workers in the ground. And cultivate means create culture. You have this huge plan, this huge creation mandate in front of you, and it's going to be massive. It's going to be awesome. It's going to extend beyond your own lifetime. It's going to be beautiful. And he gives them this picture of work. He makes them gardeners. What does this mean? It means that there is no religion, there's no religious text that associates work, again, even the lowest form of it, with great dignity, with great honor. And there's no class of workers that the Bible doesn't hold in high regard. There's no snobbery. There's, there's no class consciousness in any way. This is long before Karl Marx. But there's no class consciousness. Um, and this is still alive and well today. This, uh, I think it was about two weeks ago. I went, over, um, I went over and got a burrito at a place that I'll leave unnamed. But... Um, they've got good food. And so I'm, I'm eating the food. I get it to go, and, and they give me a to-go bag. And so I'm walking out, and there's, there's, there's like a little quote on it. And um, it's, I kind of looked up online because it was an interesting quote. And it talked about this idea of we want to create kind of conversation so people, kind of like what we're doing here, we want to do that. That's a good thing. And this quote on this bag, which, again, I would just say represents modern, uh, secular, Western you know, perspective, largely. The quote on the bag this little snippet is, is from a George Saunders, and it says, Hope that, in future, all is well. Everyone eats free. No one must work. All just sit around feeling love for one another. Now, if you were around in the 60s, you're probably like, groovy. Yeah, cool. Okay. But, no, no. I mean, but just, just think about this. This is on a business. Now, of course, yeah, I kind of wanted to go up and say, Do you, are these core values like no one has to work and everyone can eat for free? Can I get my burrito for free? I'm guessing they would say no. So they're probably not completely consistent with this idea. But see, that's the utopia. The utopia is sort of like looking back at your creation story and saying, what's the ideal? And I'll put that into the future. And the utopia story from a secular, even a secular Western perspective, no work. Because work's just bad and we all know it deep down. No one wants to do it. So it's evil and it's rotten. And things would be so great. You would flourish. You'd be so happy. You would be so, fulfill, so fulfilled if you just didn't have to work. Well, when the biblical God showed up on the world, he didn't come like, if he'd come like a Greek, I think he would have come as a philosopher. If, if the biblical God would have come like a Roman, I think he would have come like a military general. But when the biblical God came, came as a carpenter. Isn't that interesting? 
He came as the lowest form you could imagine. This is just manual labor. Now, as evangelicals, that's, 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 that's the tradition that this church is a part of. As evangelicals, when we think of things like phrases in the Bible, like the work of the Spirit, okay? If I say that, if I hear that, my mind typically immediately goes to the work of the Spirit has to do with, you know, God's work in my heart and changing, you know, convicting me of sin and encouraging me and, you know, correcting me and building me up and all these sort of, my soul, my will, my imagination, all that is very true. But see, in creation, we're told the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters that were going from kind of this darkness to beauty, going from chaos to order. Right away at the beginning, we see the work of the Spirit is involved in bringing, like, creation design. Romans chapter 8 is, is, is this, like, great passage, which is all about this idea of, um, life through the Spirit. And it talks about how we live our lives and am I following God and am I, am I living out of my own strength or am I living out of Christ's strength? Am I, am I doing this? How am I pursuing? Am I living in sin? Am I allowing that to hold me back or am I following Christ? Am I submitting to Him? It's all about this. And you get about halfway through the chapter and all of a sudden it introduces this idea that almost feels like, is this a different topic? Why did you start talking about this? No. It's actually the very same topic, it's connected to it. Romans chapter 8, it speaks of the same spirit who liberates us from sin and decay and all that. Also, quote, will liberate creation itself and it will bring creation into the glorious freedom of the children of God. What it's saying is the goal for this, for this, this creation, that means the mountains, it means rivers, it means, it means people groups, it means cities. All these sorts of things are going to be involved in the resurrection. They're going to be involved in new heavens and new earth. And that's the spirit of God is equally about that creation restoration as he is about saving a soul, convicting someone of sin. He's about them both. Do you know what this means? It means that being, being a farmer is just as spiritual of work as being a pastor. It is. It's just as if, if if you dig a ditch to build or to bring water into a little garden that you have, or if you compose a piece of music, or if you preach a sermon, or or maybe if you uh, if you make some wise investment or you work hard to get some new product out there in the market, it's all spiritual work. You know why? Because God is a gardener. God is an artist. God is an investor. God is a preacher. It's all spiritual work. There is no religious text in all the world that says this. About that 80% of your life. They just simply don't address it like, okay, so what? Um, here's the point. Because, because work seems to have been put into our environment, kind of, kind of like built into the fabric of what it means to live a human life, here's, let me make a statement. If you're not working, and by working I don't necessarily mean clocking in, okay? I'm using that term in the sense of if you're not using your creativity and might be serving someone, it might be taking care of a child. If, if you're not working in some way, meaning, and again, I'll, we'll, we'll explain what that means, okay? But if you're not working in a way that, that you are proud of, in any way at all, 
you're being cut off from your humanity. If the Bible is accurate. If, if what it says about work is true. If, if you go the George Saunders route and you just go, man, that's, what, that's my goal, baby. I just want to have, you know, eat for free and no work. You will shrivel your soul. You are being cut off from what it means to be fully human in some way. There's going to be some disorientation. Your soul will begin to atrophy. Because the Bible says work is not a necessary evil. It's actually a part of the creation mandate. It's part of how you will flourish. It was there in the beginning. It's how you will really flourish. Okay, how is that? You've got an outline in front of you if you want to kind of fill in a couple blanks here. The first one, two things that you have to do to, to, to have meaningful work, to have fulfilling work. The first one is you have to do your work in response to human need and community. Whatever work you're doing, whatever activity, you have to do it in response to human need and community. Take a look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 5. We looked at verse 4 a couple minutes ago. Verse 5 says this. He who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. Now, why? it's interesting. He says disgraceful son. Why, why doesn't he just say he who does this is a disgraceful boy or is a disgraceful man? But he says, is a disgraceful boy. He uses a familial, he uses a tribal word. You know why? Because immediately I realize what God is saying is that a failure in the work life is a failure to your tribe. It's a failure to your family. It's a failure to your community, wherever that is. You're not just failing yourself because your work is for your community. And, and look at the word he uses there. And here's kind of how we know this disgrace. He says it's a it's a disgrace. Now, most of us modern Westerners, we, we don't use the word disgrace. We don't we don't live in a culture which really grasps that category. We just don't really have much of that category. We tend to think, oh, disgrace, that's like guilt. No. Bible talks about guilt and disgrace, but they're different. Guilt is the idea. Here's a rule. If you break it, you're guilty. Disgrace is something very, very different. Disgrace is a failure of community. It's a failure to do what your tribe needs you to do, to do what your community needs you to do. Now, here's the principle. If you get, if you, if you get nothing else out of tonight, here's the big idea that I want us to leave with. You should do your work or choose your work or whatever more for how it helps people, and by that I'm meaning your society, your tribe, your community, than for profit or personal advancement. If, if you're at a place where you're kind of reevaluating what you're going to do, if you're a student who's in school, if you're looking at a second career, if you're retired and thinking about what you're going to do, if wherever you're at, do your work and choose your work more for how it helps other people, the community, the society, than for profit or personal advancement. See, the, this is the Bible's principle. This is what the Bible talks about all the time. Uh, Dorothy Sayers was a, was a British essayist who, who lived like during World War II and afterwards, and she, and she wrote a lot around there. And she wrote this brilliant essay on, on work. Uh, she's, a, she's a Christian Catholic, and she had a very 
deep theology of work that that 80% of our lives. And she said, man, it seems like God cares a whole heck of a lot about it. And Dorothy Sears had this phenomenal thing. She said, listen to this. This is, this is so interesting. She said, the habit of thinking about work as something one does just to make money, that's the, it's just about personal gain, personal profit. She said, it is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be, both psychologically to me as well as socially, to think otherwise. See, in the, in the modern view, people become doctors, not primarily to, res, to relieve suffering, but to bring themselves and their family up in the world to a different kind of social class. People become lawyers, not primarily to, because they have a passion for justice, but to bring themselves and their family up in the world. And what she said is during World War II, now again, she's writing just after World War II. This is so interesting. During World War II, she said one of the great surprises for many English men who had to serve in the army was they found themselves for the very first time in their life happy and satisfied. Now, why is that? For the very first time in their lives, they found themselves doing something, not for the pay, because you join the army, you got paid like almost nothing. <laughs> they found themselves doing something, not, um, not for the status, because everyone's just thrown in the same. It doesn't matter what job you had before, we're all kind of equal in this way. But she said, but for the sake of getting something done for all of us. Isn't that so interesting? See, think of how much better society would be if, if you chose your career, if you chose your work, uh, based on the benefit of the customers that you're going to serve, based on the benefit of the employees that you're going to employ, based on the benefit of your colleagues that you work with, the people around you, more than for just personal profit or personal advancement. It would, it, it would revolutionize the social world. And what she's saying is by not doing that, we're... we're we're allowing the social fabric to become like unraveled. It's sort of falling apart. Also, think of the psychological revolution. See, all these Englishmen, all these guys who fought in World War II, they went into the army and they found, so this is what satisfying work is. Like, I've never experienced it before. But so many of them psychologically said, I've never been more satisfied in my work and all my life. And they had horrible, difficult jobs. Very difficult jobs. No pay, no social standing, and yet they were happy. See, this is wisdom. Proverbs doesn't tell you, like, which job to take, right? I mean, there's some jobs that says don't take, right? You know, there's the, you know, don't, don't be a drug smuggler, okay? Don't, don't, don't smuggle marijuana. And this is Colorado, so probably someone here is doing that. Stop it, okay? <laughs> don't smuggle marijuana, okay? Just stop it. But, but see, what, what Proverbs tells us is almost all jobs are allowable. But not every job is wise. You could do lots of jobs that you might even kind of do okay at. You might personally succeed in terms of profit, but it would be a foolish decision. Such a foolish decision. God says, if you want a, if you want a sociological, if you want a psychological revolution then start to do work, start to choose your work in response to human need, in response to the community around you. You look around and say, what, what, what would like meet a huge need? 
And again, as a byproduct, remember a few weeks ago we talked about happiness, happiness, happy life versus the meaningful life. You choose that, and you're pursuing meaning, and you're going to get happiness thrown in. You go for the job that you think is going to make you happy, you'll lose meaning and happiness. You won't get either one. But this is how that applies here. Okay, number two, real quickly. We've got to go kind of fast. Uh, number two, do your work in response to God's calling and gifting. Do your work in response to God's calling and gifting. Take a look at Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. The author writes, Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. Do you see someone skilled in their work? That's, that's the key word. They will serve before kings. Now, skilled in the English language can mean a lot of different things. But in the Hebrew, what it means, it, it means talented it means natural giftings. It means something that you, you're, you're, you're sort of hardwired with certain abilities or gifts or capabilities. And Christians have always said, look at your talents. Look at your abilities. Look at the gifts. Look at the things that you're good at. Look at the things that you love to do. Look at your capacities. Those are not accidents. Those aren't just there by happenstance. That's part of your call. See, your maker, by giving you what you've got, he's putting you into a work that fits your capabilities. Do work that you're good at. Pursue things, areas, service projects, whatever it might be, that fit how you're hardwired. This is, you know, White Timberline, we have our, a lot of you guys have gone through our, um, our summit classes, and we've got summit one, two, and three, and, and summit two, we spend time, we tell people, hey, go online to our website and take the shape assessment, and the shape assessment's all about, like, finding out, okay, what are my spiritual gifts, and what's my heart, many things just really kind of drives me, and what are my abilities, and what are my passions, and, um, and my experiences, and it kind of pulls them all together, and it's just, it's just one attempt to say, man, if you know yourself, if, if you look into how you're hardwired, all of a sudden, these questions of, oh, what's God calling me to do? What should I do? Just start to, f- you find them because you're, you're moving in areas of your gifting. And if you're not doing that, you're not being shrewd. You can sit around all you want and say, oh, God, just tell me what to do. God, please tell me, tell me what I should be doing. Tell me what kind of work I should go into. Tell me who I should be connecting with. He's, he's giving you a brain. And he's saying, go evaluate Go explore how I've made you. Look at the masterpiece. Dig into the art. Dig into the music that I've composed. That's you. And find out your skills and your ability. Now, oftentimes, your gifts will take you away from jobs and that have great benefits, great profits, if you follow your calling. They may do that. But again, it comes down to what's, what's the highest priority for you? Is it following how you're gifted? Or is it kind of securing some sort of a personal profit or benefit. And that, that's a hard decision to answer. It really is. So if, if you put these two things together, doing, doing things for the sake of community, the needs there, and God, and doing things that, that, that you're fit for, you'll start to do work for work's sake. What I mean by that is you'll start to have a passion. You'll start to see that this, this is like this. It becomes an adventure all of a sudden. You have a totally different outlook. Ephesians 2.10 Paul writes this, we are God's workmanship. That means he designed you. He built you. He put you where you are. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. 
Do you realize what an adventure that is? If you really believe that, if you really take this into your life, when you stop working for just mere personal advancement, profit, bottom line sort of stuff, money, and you start to work for community, if you start to work for the needs around you in response to God's calling, you know what happens? There's this phenomenal thing that happens. Let me, let me tell you with this story here. Uh, John Coltrane, famous jazz musician, one of, one of my mentors that I had in my graduate program, like, just talked about John Coltrane like all the time. I was so sick of hearing about John Coltrane because he loves jazz and all this thing. But he'd always talk about John Coltrane and what this phenomenal saxophonist and jazz musician he was. Well, Coltrane had this, um, you know, he played with guys like Dizzy Gillespie and Miles Davis. And, and uh, Coltrane had this religious experience in 1957. And he writes about it in the liner notes in one of his most famous albums. And this is, this is what Coltrane writes here. Listen to how he puts this. During the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked God to be given the means and the privilege to make others happy through music. One night, Coltrane was performing. He got up with his saxophone, and if you, if you know anything about jazz, every, every time they play, it's different. Each night's a little bit different. And as he, as he got up, he played the lights out. He played his heart out. He, he went beyond what he thought he was ever capable of doing. He played this absolute masterpiece, best thing he'd ever done in his life. And when he was done after this long, long rip, he sits down, and others who were there heard him say, Nunc Dimittis. Nunc Dimittis. And that's Latin for the beginning of a, of a statement made in the Bible. In the New Testament, there's an old, old man named Simeon. Simeon had worked hard as a priest his whole life, served God faithfully, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. He had been consistent, diligent in his work. And he prayed, he said, God, would you allow me to see something so beautiful in my work that it makes it all worthwhile? Maybe he prayed that because it was right foot, left foot, right. Would you allow me to experience just something beautiful, something great? And so Simeon has his turn. It comes very, very rarely, kind of once in a blue moon, his role at the temple and he's at that one time, and he's there. And this young little teenage mom comes walking in with, with her husband named Joseph. And they've got this little, little boy. And they present him. And, and Simeon sees it, and it's Jesus. And somehow the Spirit of God says, this is it. This is not just what you've been waiting for. This is what... Israel's been waiting for. It's not just what Israel's been waiting for. It's what the world's been waiting for. The work he's going to do is going to make everything worthwhile. And he says, Nunc Dimittis in the Latin. He says, Now let your servant depart in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. See, what he's saying is this. I've experienced something so beautiful, I'm ready to die. Can you imagine that? I've, I've had a taste. My work, I finally got a taste of my work of something so right on. It's like John Coltrane. Man, that felt good. It just felt right. It, 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 it clicked. It was beautiful. And Coltrane just got a window, but it gave him hope to say, man, my goal is not to get rid of work. It's not to be like on a, a burrito bag. 
My goal is to experience work someday in all its fullness and all its beauty in such a way that I am utterly and completely fulfilled. Life is redeemed. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, I'm going to give you rest. You might get to go, oh, good. No more of this work stuff. Brito bag. He goes, no, no, no. Take my yoke upon you. Yoke means work. Yoke is labor. But he says, but it's my yoke. It's my creativity. It's my job. You saddle up to work with me, and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be beautiful. There's going to be tough moments, but it's going to be some of the most fulfilling moments in your life. This is what we're called to today. We're called to apply wisdom to work. And if you're a follower of Jesus, as you seek to be wise, go to Christ and say, Help me understand myself better. How have you hardwired me? What do you call me? What do you want me to do in life? Maybe you're retired and you say, God, you've put this neighbor like right next to me. And like maybe that's my calling right now. Maybe it's to serve them in a really significant way. Or man, I'm at work and, and it's, I'm doing something that seems so menial. Look to Christ. Look to the one who came as Emmanuel labor. And his work ultimately on the cross gives me hope, gives me meaning to say, one day work will be absolutely fulfilling. It'll be perfect. There's going to be hard times. There are hard times in every part of our work. But it's not meaningless. It's not, it's not the Greeks pushing a rock up a hill and watching it roll back down. There's meaning in this. And that's 80% of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God of work. Thank you that the moment we see you on the scene in Scripture, you're working. You are diligently, targetedly pursuing something carefully. And God, I pray that as we think about what it means to be made in your image, to be image bearers into our world, God, would you allow our work to be so redeemed? Would you allow our perspective to be so transformed as we, as we wrestle through this, as we continue wrestling and praying and working things out? God, that as we step into our areas of work, our areas of service, our areas of volunteering, that, that somehow, God, your kingdom would just start to ooze out of what we're doing. Not because we just have a bigger smile on our face, but because authentically we begin to do our work because of the, the community, the human need around us. And we begin to do it out of our giftedness, out of how you've made us. And then we begin to love the work we begin to find passion and meaning in it because we see it's a leaf in your great big tree of creation. So God, give us a big picture. Thank you, God, that you care about the 80% of our lives. Thank you that you're doing great things. And Lord, help us to be a community which asks tough questions, who, who wrestles through these issues. We don't want to just go with the flow of culture, God. We want to be targeted workers. We want to be shrewd. And we pray this in the name of our King, the great carpenter. And we all sit together. Amen. Amen. Hey, feel free to hang out, you guys. Grab a snack. Grab some coffee. Our prayer team is going to be up front. Um, offering plate. If you came prepared to give an offering, it's in the back. Thank you for your faithfulness in that way. Thanks so much for being here. Th thanks for plugging in relationally with other people. And look forward to seeing you guys next week. Love you.